listening to the sermon audio from Renaissance Church. We pray that this message equips you to be formed into the image of Christ as you grow in your love of God, and it fuels you to love your neighbor as yourself. We are convinced that while this sermon audio is beneficial, this should only be supplemental and not replace local church involvement, the pastor God has put over your life, or your commitment to gather in person with other believers to make more disciples for the fame of Jesus. Peace be with you. Good morning. Today's passage is Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 through 21. You can follow along. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land, of, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in, the, in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up to the steps of my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you that you are holy and that you are just. Thank you that you did not hide from us how you want us to live, but that in your mercy you showed us who you are. I pray that you would bless Rob today as he preaches um, from your word. I pray that you would anoint his lips to speak the truth and that 
you would anoint our hearts to hear it. I pray, Jesus, that you would change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, welcome, Renaissance Church. Um, we are so glad that you're here. And again, if, if you're a guest with us, we'd love for you to fill out the Connect card. That's right at the top of our online platform. And that will get you connected to our church and uh, get you um, more information about who we are and who Jesus is. Now, what you just heard read were the, the Ten Commandments. And these commandments are more than just what to do. It's about a relationship. And I wonder, what, what do you think makes a good relationship? Now, the answer to that question depends on the context, right? Um, if you were to ask a, a kindergartner um, or sixth grade girls, well, what makes a good relationship? I mean, maybe it's just following each other on TikTok or Instagram and liking all their posts. That might be what describes a good relationship. It's all based on context. But how we define relationships as we get older gets a little bit more complex because it's just not about definitions of the relationship. It's about the expectations of a relationship. And, and this is what God's doing right here at Mount Sinai with his people. I mean, throughout scripture, God refers to Israel as his bride, and he is her husband. And we know that within any healthy marriage, it's not enough for a spouse to just say, I love you, right? If my wife were to ask me to wash the dishes and I just responded with, oh, babe, I love you. And she says, but I want you to wash the dishes. And I respond with, yeah, but I love you. You would say that I really don't love her based on my actions uh, because I'm not considering her interests more important than my own. See, what God is doing here and what any good marriage does is they say that there's an agreement, um, expectations, a covenant, if you will, that says this type of love is special, it's sacrificial, and we promise not to share it with any other. All good marriages are not just built on love, but a love that comes with expectations. And that's what these 10 commandments, literally in the Hebrew, these 10 words are. They're ground rules to set expectations between God's existing steadfast love with his people who are now saying, we're going to love you in return. So what we'll discover is that God not only defines the reality of our vertical relationship with him, but he defines the reality of our horizontal relationship with others. See, what I'm convinced that this passage is, is going to reveal to us is that the way in which we love others reveals how we love our God. And so how... How does the way that we love others, our horizontal relationships, expose the truth about our love for God? Now, ho hopefully we'll, we'll find the answer to, to that question and a few others as, as we go through this passage in four movements. The first movement, we're going to take a look at God's love. 
The second movement, we're going to see how that love motivates us to love God in return. But as well, the third movement, to love our neighbors. And finally, we're going to see how this love is the fourth movement, is a love that casts out all fear. My friends, my brothers and sisters, what, what I hope and pray comes as a result of this is that we'd be able to see God's great love for us. And that would motivate us to love all around us. For how we love those around us reveals how we've been loved by God and how we believe we've been loved by God. And so let's look at that first point. You all ready to dive in? First point, God's love. So here we are, Mount Sinai. God promised that he would find his people there and meet his people there. And before ever telling Israel what to do, God reminds them of what he has already done. Did you see that in verse 2? He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God right here is defining his relationship to Israel. He's saying, I am your God, which means that you are my people. I have redeemed you. Therefore, you are the redeemed. God defines who we are in relationship to him. Now, I wonder, have you ever driven on the the turnpike or through a country road and you've seen those signs with these 10 words, these 10 commandments on them? It's a bit confusing that that's the only thing on those signs. I mean, just, just think about it. What good will these commands do if they do not know what God has done? All, all those commands will do is produce people who believe that if they obey, then God will love them. It produces an arrogant, self-righteous type of person. But this is not what these 10 words are about. God is speaking directly to his people right now. No mediator. Did you guys notice that? He's not using a mediator. He's saying, I am establishing my relationship with you. I am establishing my covenant with you. And we're doing it face to face right now. Words with words. Covenant is an agreement between two parties that agrees to uphold their end of the deal. And if they do so, it'll go well with them and with their children. However, the ground, the sure footing, the firm foundation on which these commandments stand is a redemption that was not based on works, a redemption that was not based on their ability to keep these commands. Yo, God did not redeem Israel because they did obey them or would obey them. God did not redeem Israel because they were good or they would eventually be good. No, what Deuteronomy tells us is God, God redeemed them because he loves them. He loves them. And they trusted in that love when they trusted in the blood of the innocent spotless lamb and painted it on the doorpost. And this is true for all of us who have put their trust in the innocent spotless lamb of God who is Christ Jesus, who has came, who's come to take away the sins of the world. Listen, God doesn't love you because you obey. God doesn't love you because you are good. 
God loves you because Jesus is good. God loves you because Jesus has obeyed in your place. And you know what that does to a person? When they know that this is what the extent that what God has gone to in order to love us? Well, that love produces a love in return. Jesus even tells us that if you love me, this is in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commands. See, God's love for us in Christ Jesus is what redeems us and saves us. But that same love is the love that motivates us to obey him and live for him. If we love him, because we know he has loved us first, we will then live for him. So how do we go about doing that? How do we love a God who has first loved us? Well, we're going to see that in our second movement, love God. Now, we've preached through each one of these commandments about a year and a half ago. And so if you want a detailed explanation of each one of these commands, you can go on our website underneath sermons and you can find a sermon on each one of these commands. But right now, we're going to do a flyby, an overview. And how are we to love God? Well, the first four commands tells us that we are to love God with our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. I mean, if you look at verses 3 through 6, and I encourage you to have uh, your Bibles open to Exodus 20 as we go through this. If you look at verses 3 through 6, the first command and the second command are primarily how we think about God. In saying that you should not have any other gods before me, God is saying, I am your only God. I don't want any gods beside me, below me, above me, around me. I am God. And by telling them in the second commandment not to create any graven images to worship, he's telling them, he's telling them that he is larger than anything created. What is created cannot contain who I am. In fact, what's implied in this passage is a reminder for their minds, their thoughts, to start thinking about how they were created. That the creator God had already created images to reflect him. He created man and he created woman. In his what? Can you say it with me? In his image, in his likeness. You see, human beings exist, not so that we can worship one another, but so that we can be a mere image of who we ought to worship, our creator and not the created. But it's not just our thoughts, it's our words in verse 7. He says, do not use my name in vain, because if you do, you'll be found guilty. Now, now what does this mean? Because I, I feel like People have maybe a reductionistic view of what this can mean, which therefore weakens this passage. It's not merely cursing with God's name in it. It's to view his name as ordinary. And even worse, to use his name for our vain advancement. Let me give you an example. Any time you hear somebody say, or you're tempted to say, God told me, fill in the blank, 
and those words are found nowhere in Scripture, that's using God's name in vain. It's using his name to advance your cause so that you can do what you want just by attaching his name on it. The only time we ever say, God told me, is when we open up this book and it agrees with what this book tells us. Now, it doesn't mean we can't say things like, I feel like the Spirit is leading me to or is prompting me to. But we have to be careful not to claim that God has said something that he has never said in his perfect and inerrant word. It's not just our thoughts, not just our words, but it's also our deeds in verses 8 through 11. And this one is specifically, this deed is to put down our work, trusting that God will still work. This is the Sabbath, to keep it holy because God is holy. The Shabbat means literally to stop, to cease. This is not just rest for our physical bodies, it's rest for our souls. When we put down our work, we are declaring God's still working and he will provide, even though I cannot provide for myself on this day. When we lay our heads down to rest, we are saying, even though I am falling asleep, I know that my God never slumbers. And we'll have more on this idea of Sabbath, of Shabbat, of these festivals. In two weeks' time from now, we'll be preaching on all of the Sabbath days and festivals. But all of these are thoughts, our words, and our deeds. It reveals that we are to love a holy God with our whole selves. That we are embodied creatures in mind, in our thoughts, in our souls, in our heart and our emotions and if our, our bodies, our actions were a whole being. And Jesus says that this, this is the greatest commandment in Matthew 22 verses 37 to 38. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. We love our God with our whole selves because he is holy and has loved us first. We don't do these things to earn God's love. We do these things because we already have access to God's love. But how do we know? How do you know that somebody loves God? Look what John says in 1 John 4, verses 20 to 21. He says, whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or a sister, is a liar. And that's just not family, brother or sister. That's people within the church, the family of God. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he, that is Jesus, has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. The way you love others reveals whether or not you know God's love and that you love God in return, which is our third movement, to love your neighbor. Now you can see it already in the fourth commandment. The Shabbat 
already is instructing us in not just love for God, but love for others. I wonder if you notice that. There is no cheating on the Sabbath. <laughs> you can't get other people to do the work for you to provide for you. He's saying, don't, don't get them to do the work that you're supposed to not be doing. Don't exploit. Don't exploit your neighbor. Don't exploit your employees. And don't even exploit the beasts of the field. Let them rest. See, where the first four commands encompass the greatest command to love God with everything, thoughts, words, and deeds, we now see those same attributes in reverse. Deeds, then words, then thoughts. We see it in the fifth commandment, verse 12, to honor your father and mother. Now, let's be clear. Honoring does not mean you follow the commands of your parents if they command you to sin. They're not God. Honor doesn't mean you worship them because parents are not your God. Honoring doesn't mean you get your identity and your worth from their pleasure in you because they're not God. Honor in a communal agrarian society meant that children were the retirement plan. What does this mean? Well, when the children were younger, they could not take care of themselves. Who took care of them? The parents. Now, as parents age, we know that as people age, they cannot take care of themselves. So the way that you honor your aging parents is to care for them like God has cared for you. That's what honoring means. But then we have the sixth, the seventh, and the eighth commandment in verses 13 through 15. We're not also to not murder. Seventh, commit adultery. Eighth, or steal. Why? One of the purposes of the law is to reveal the holy nature of God. And if we're to be image bearers of God, then how we live around others reveals who God is. We shouldn't murder because God does not take life. He is the giver of life, meaning we don't take life when it's inside the womb, when it's outside the womb, when it's on the streets, or when people are aging with assisted suicide. We love life because God is the author and savior of life. Why don't we commit adultery? Because God never commits adultery on his people. He is faithful until the end, even though we find ourselves unfaithful. And why don't we steal? Because God's not a thief. He's a generous giver. And he's given us all things we need in this life in Christ Jesus. These deeds reveal the character of God, but also our words reveal it as well. In verse 16, we have the ninth commandment. Do not bear false witness. This is all about justice. This is all about the court system. They're saying, do not slander, do not spread false narratives about others. Why don't we do this? Because to spread lies about others is to disagree with God and call God a liar. So when you spread false stories about others, you're saying that what God says about them is not true. 
And this is why, as God's people, we're committed to tell the truth about others and ourselves and not spread conspiracy theories. For some odd reason, Christians are addicted to conspiracy theories right now. God is a God of truth, not a God of theories. That's why we're committed to truthful, biblical justice so that those who are truly guilty would receive retributive justice. And those who are truly innocent would receive restorative justice. And that redemptive justice would be offered to all. And we'll have more on biblical justice next week when Moses talks about justice and the people of God and who God is. Our love for God is revealed in the way that we love others. And the way that we love others reveals how we think and believe that God has loved us. And how we view others comes full circle back to our thoughts. Comes full circle back to our thoughts where God began with the first commandment, with our thoughts. In verse 17, we see the tenth and final command. Do not covet. Now, coveting is not the same as desire. You can desire a job and not sin. You could desire a spouse. You can desire things so long as it's not somebody else's. Those desires are not inherently bad. But the way that coveting turns a desire into an over-desire is when you look at something and say, I must have it. It turns the created thing into an ultimate thing. And coveting is where I believe the breaking of all the other commands begin. Coveting puts your wants and your desires at the center of the universe, not God. First commandment, broken. Coveting leads to working your tail off because the things that you want are musts and you never take a day off. Fourth commandment, Coveting another person's spouse leads to adultery. And if you remember King David's adultery with Bathsheba, it even led him to break the sixth command, not to murder. Murdered Bathsheba's husband. Coveting leads to theft. Coveting leads to the defamation of others so that you can push others down, their status down, so your status gets raised up. My brothers and sisters, my friends, God does not want us to covet. He wants us to be content with him and what he has given us each day, our daily bread. All these commands are summed up as the second side of the coin of the twofold command that Jesus gives us. He sums it up in Matthew 22, 39 through 40. He says, in the second command is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. 
What Jesus is saying, love for God and love for neighbor, sums up the entire Old Testament. It sums up all of Scripture. If you want to know how to love God in return, who has loved you first, love your neighbor as yourself. Love requires proximity. Love requires knowing others and being known by others. Love requires sacrifice. Love requires vulnerability. Love requires you to say, I am here to serve you even though you might never serve me. For that is what Christ Jesus has done for me on the cross. He has come to serve and not to be served. And that type of love, when we experience true, biblical, Christian love flown from Christ Jesus, it casts out all fear. It casts out all fear, and that's the fourth movement. See, after hearing the voice of God, if you look at verse 18, the Israelites, they begin to beg Moses for him to speak to them instead of God. Why? Well, they feared they would die. They, they fear that they were going to be abandoned because they know they're standing in the presence of a holy God and they are not holy. They knew that after hearing these laws, they would never be able to keep these laws. And will God leave us? Will he forsake us? Well, the Apostle Paul experienced the same reality when he heard the law. If you turn with me to the book of Romans in chapter 7, Starting in verse 7, the Apostle Paul says this about the law. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. For I have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. I mean, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when that commandment came, that is the 10th commandment, not to covet, sin came alive in me and I died. Do you see what Paul's telling us about that final command? He thought he was obeying the law perfectly. He had all the right words. He had all the right actions. He had all the right religious jargon and look. But then that final law, the 10th command, went straight for the gut. Once he saw that it said, you shall not covet, that sin even motivated his good works. Meaning this, Paul and us, we can do all the right things for all the wrong reasons. He's saying this law was like a mirror. And mirrors are useful because it reveals what we cannot see. It reveals what we cannot see. Now, nearly all of us look at a mirror at least one time a day, right? Can I get a show of hands? How many of y'all looked in a mirror so far? Now, let, let me just talk to, to my sisters in here and my sisters out there. Now, when you see a blemish on your face, or maybe some dark eye rings underneath those eyes. I mean, what do you do? I'll tell you what I do. I grow a beard to cover it up, or I put glasses on. But what do y'all do? You usually grab a brush and apply some cover-up, 
or grab some cream and rub it up underneath here. But I'm confident that you have never taken the mirror off the wall to try to apply that makeup or to try, or try to apply that moisturizer. Why? Because you know the mirror is not designed to do that. It was not made to do that. The mirror reveals what is wrong, but it was never meant to fix what is wrong. The law of God reveals his holy nature, the first purpose of the law, but it also reveals the sinful nature of man. It reveals what is wrong, but the law cannot fix what is wrong. And that's why these Israelites are freaking out. They, they know that they can't keep this law. And we know if we read the story that they will break every one of these commands in these next several pages. They're not holding up their side of the covenant. And already I can hear some of you saying that this is why I hate Christianity. This is why I hate the Bible. It's only about rules and it's so exclusive. This is why I can't stand Christians and I refuse to be around them. I refuse to be around people who believe this dated stuff. But let's think about that for a moment. Isn't that exclusive? Doesn't cancel culture have a set of rules? Isn't it exclusive and not inclusive? Isn't it saying in order to be around you and be your friend and belong to what you belong to, that someone has to ascribe to a certain set of beliefs and ascend some type of holy hill that you've created that you alone stand on? You see, cancel culture, secularism has the same core beliefs as religious traditionalism. That if you obey, then you're accepted. If you accept and do what I say, then you belong. Achieve my love, then I will receive you. You have to work to belong. You have to work for an identity. But the beautiful thing about the kingdom of God is that God's steadfast love can never be canceled. It's ready and available, especially to those who say that I failed. Especially to those who say, I can't live up to these standards. That is the beginning of understanding God's love for you. Is that as soon as you admit, as soon as you repent that I am not holy like you, God's willing and ready to accept you. Remember, God did not require them to come up a holy mountain of rules before welcoming into him into a loving relationship. No, the relationship was already established by the blood of the Lamb. And now he's saying, the, these are the requirements to keep that relationship going. But even if you fail, if you turn back to me, my steadfast love is still available. God says that their identity, their worth was not based on receiving, of, of achieving a status, but instead of receiving a status that's already theirs. 
I am your God, which means that you are mine. And I will never leave you nor forsake you. No, never, no, never. We just sang those words. And they got this relationship even before they heard the laws or even had a chance to obey. And these people, they, they went back to works-based relationship. They wanted Moses to climb back up the mountain and be their mediator. They thought they needed him. Because God's glory and thunder and lightning and the booming voice of God threatened them. But they forgot that their relationship was not based on works. It's based on God's love. And many of us, as you hear these commands, you're fearful right now. And what if God saw all the things that I've done? What if he knew who I really was? Not just who I posture myself to be in front of others, but who I really am deep down. What if he knew that? Well, the reality is he does know that. He does see it all. And that's why he didn't require you to come up to him, but he sent his glory down to us because we were unable to climb that mountain to him. He did this by sending Jesus. He came in the flesh. Where Colossians 1, 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Hebrews 1 tells us He is the radiant glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. For by Him and through Him, all things were created for Him so that He might be preeminent, He might be superior, He might be worshipped above all things. And when Christ came, Jesus obeyed all these laws to the fullest. He loved God perfectly and He loved others with His whole self. But then He went to die on the cross, not for His disobedience, but for our disobedience. He did this so that you and I would not have to fear punishment. But instead, know the love of God. That it's not achieved. It's received. The love that says, I am yours and you are mine. Not based on what you have done, but based on what Jesus has done. And that identity can never be taken away from us. That love, that relationship is never ending because it's steadfast and it's a gift. And this is what it means when Moses says to his people, you don't have to fear. God set up these to test you, to test to see if you fear him, if you love him, so that you might not sin. And friends, that is the third use of the law. The third use of the law is to know the pathway of life so that we can say yes to the spirit and no to the flesh. And the beautiful thing is, we don't have to do this alone. Did you know for the Jews, Pentecost was a, was a huge celebration. Do you know what they were celebrating? The giving of the law. And after Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension, all the Jews gathered in Jerusalem. On what holiday? Pentecost. And on that day, God's glory came down again. It came down in the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who now seals the covenant, this relationship with us in Christ Jesus that can never be broken. And not only that, he writes the law of God on our hearts so that we might 
live. When we have that spirit living inside of us, we know that punishment is not what we fear. We fear God, for that is the beginning of wisdom and the pathway to all of life. And we don't have to fear because God has loved us. And now we are no longer slaves to the law, for the law once condemned us. But Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection, has now set us free to love him in return and live for him. My friends, I, I want to close today, not with my words, but with God's words. And I just want to invite you right now, just take a big, deep breath and close your eyes and hear these promises read over you for those who put their faith in Christ Jesus. And if you haven't put your faith in Christ Jesus, I invite you to receive his grace right now, to believe in him for the first time. That you don't have to achieve God's love. But Jesus has already achieved it for you. And now all that's left is to receive it. So my friends, hear these words from the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 through 21. I invite you to close your eyes and just receive these words. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we've come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. And by this is love perfected with us. So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have heard from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let's pray. Father, teach us to love 